is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Thursday, May 4th, readers gathered at Amore Coffee to read their pieces from St. Paul Almanac, On a Collected Path, Volume 11. Growing up on St. Paul's west side, David Mendez's writing focuses on his experience as a third generation Chicano in Minnesota. He looks to the blue-collar roots of his community. He hopes that his works will inspire others to find their voice and share a story. Please welcome David. <clears throat> Just, I didn't know I was going to go first like that, but okay. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you all for, and welcome. Welcome to uh, my side of the city. Um, we're not too, we're kind of in the West St. Paul area, but not too, a couple blocks you were, you will be, you will be on what's considered the West Side. And, you know, honestly, it's kind of one of the oldest Mexican-American immigrant communities in the state. And so there's a lot of history that goes through it. And, of course, you'll see that on Saturday when we have single de Mile, all that stuff on our side of it. But um, uh, this first piece is, is um, uh, if you want to look on page 167, um, is a... <clears throat> It's a piece dedicated, basically, I go to our Lady Guadalupe Church down here off of Concord. And, um, you know, we're getting that time of the season. Things are getting warm. It's a beautiful day. Uh, the sun is, you know, getting warmer. And, you know, and it's always that time of year never fails, especially during the summertime. We have these uh, Mexican ice cream vendors that come and sell, you know, the goods in front of the church, you know, wait for the mass to end. Everybody comes out, you know, and everybody wants to see that. So this is kind of a poem that, you know, kind of seems like, yeah, it's kind of our community a little bit. So this is called Apalatero's Mass, and Apalatero, by the way, means a Mexican ice cream vendor. A family of Apalateros stands in silent vigil in the parking lot of church. Each cart their own ofrenda, decorated with faces of cartoons, video game characters, and ice cream versions of homemade desserts. Maybe today the Virgencita will grant their prayers for a warm day. Here they have their own misas, awaiting the congregation to go in peace. Sure, they stand for the pointing hands of Sunday's preschoolers, dragging their parents, the giggling of siblings, using the building entrance as their own game board. Here they call to young men, get something cool for this hot day. To couples, hey, how about something sweet for your sweetie? There's no age limit or status, just a sales pitch to nostalgia. For your new home may be here, and so are we. They only come for the Spanish services, for the temp is just right. But cash is universal in all lenguas. There is a flavor for everyone here. Before the lot is empty, they leave, with lighter carts and fuller pockets. They carry her Sunday blessing. So that was just dedicated to kind of the people in my community, you know, and it's like, and it's like everyone, you know, they have a story about their community and what it means to them. And um, 
But you know, kind of being in St. Paul, you know, it's it's always one of those things people overlook. It's like saying, well, yeah, that's the that's, everybody looks at Minneapolis, but St. Paul is really the good spot to be at. Kind of growing up here, you know, it's always like it was we were under the shadows of Minneapolis, and so it's always about trying to find a place. And so I kind of feel there's always kind of like a misguided love for our city, you know. And I mean, I, I grew up here, and I'm very proud of that, you know. And they, even know where I go, places people don't believe I'm from here. And so, but you know, I do have a lot of love and a lot of heart for the city. Uh, so this this piece I, I wrote is kind of more a response to like just kind of like with the movements that have been happening, the protests, and everyone's focused on Minneapolis. And I wanted to be like, this is for my city. You know, we are the other side. We are just as active. We are moving. We are this. So it's on on page one eighty four. You want to follow along? Uh, this is poem is called "Ain't No Love for My Part of Town." On my side of the river, they tried to make space for the affluent. Even though we had to fight with our own, we still won. On my side of the river, heaven knows I have seen enough of those brown faces and fake smiles that claim to fight for us. On this side of the river, there were neighborhoods decimated for infrastructural gain for your convenience. On my side of the river, like that water, we curve and sway with the current glimmering to the sun. On my side of the river, we are unknown, a display of the past, a byproduct of rhetoric, a wasteland of political causes. On my side of the river, we also live under a militarized state, under the weight of security cams, under the weight of marble and copper domes. On my side of the river, the city was built with blood money, bandaged by broken treaties under constant construction. On my side of the river, we are not out of touch. We are just a tad bit out of reach, but movements are continually born. On my side of the river, we will not matter. We are just bodies to fill in societal gaps. On my side of the river, we are invisible. It's better this way, so the space can be for us alone. On my side of the river, we will never be the hip, trendy activists, dividing ourselves under the false narrative that we are breaking walls. On my side of the river, we are burial mounds of a disrespected people, refugees of closed factories and flooded shacks. On this side of the river, we are our own. We are among many. We belong to this valley. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Pierre Fulford. Uh, Pierre, go ahead. <laughs> Careful for A.K.R. Pierre the poet not only seeks to promote peace for himself but for all of humanity, and art is his weapon of choice. A native of St. Paul, he is greatly inspired by the life of, and works of Jesus Christ, Tupac, and Malcolm X. Uh, please give a round of applause for Pierre Fulford. Uh, another name I, I'm going by, I change names frequently. Uh, so it went from, uh, from Pierre the poet uh, to Minister Pierre X. And one, because the word minister means servant, right? And so I just, I really believe it's a conviction of mine that with art you can serve, right? And that's a beautiful thing. And the X means to multiply. Um, and I just want to at this moment just in this space multiply the spirit of love. I really believe that can change the world. Uh, someone asked us to do something very comfortable for those who love words of affirmation, uncomfortable for those who don't. Um, so who's ever next to you, 
uh, just give them three words of affirmation. Starting right now, go. Give them a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> they look good. That mocha smells great. You're awesome. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so as you guys are, look at you guys, so rambunctious. Look at the love. Okay, so as you guys are, guys and gals, are soaking in that love now. You see how this, you see what just happened here? You see what we just did? We just blew some stuff up um, in a good way. Uh, there was a test that was done, a uh, scientific study, how the words of affirmation affect test performance. There was three uh, test groups, study groups, and the ones that received words of affirmation as they were taking the test had to come back the next day and take that same test, and they performed better than the other two groups that didn't. So actually receiving words of affirmation can help you better on test. And how many know life is a test sometimes? Ah. Okay, so we're going to go to page 118. It's the love section. Oh, God, so gracious. Like, they put me in the love section. <laughs> and, uh, and the angel was walking across the street and said, This is a, a, a Mori. A, how do you pronounce the name? A Mori. It's French for. See how that just tied in? So, all right. Another poem is called Good Grief. It's a play on words, even though we don't really like to play with words, but it's, uh, ah, you get it? Ah, cool, cool. Uh, it's called Good Grief, and it's a snapshot of a reality that I come from, meaning my friends come from. Some of you may even come from this reality. So take a journey with me to my vantage point, our vantage point, your neighbor's vantage point, Good grief. Gospel for the black boy. I'll never turn my back away on the ghetto that I held from because I know we need joy. Grieving when she lost a boy, son to gun destroy. These avenues are full of dark street lamps are decoys. Light for real is badly needed. Hunger here is no secret. Hunger here, the belly preaching sermon title, I'm done believing that you really care for us. But you'll sell us fancy trucks if our credit's good enough, if not interest is going up. It's just a prison without bars. Miss a payment, credit scarred. Maintain payment, get a job plus the two you had before. Family time factored out. Children never see their pa. Mama raising them alone. Loneliness inside her heart. Workaholic, alcoholic, what's the difference? Who can call it? But we got a smartphone. Maybe there's an app to solve it. This is not for sympathy. This is just reality for every family making under 40K. Good grief. Inside my grandma's eyes, I never looked before until I saw the look when granddad came back from that liquor store. Slurring with a new cologne, nothing she could condone, but no time for scolding here. She's just glad he made it home. That'll teach you a lot about love. The power of a simple hug and the ability to understand why they would 
turn to drugs. A war inside you'll never see. Most of us are blind and free from the hell they travel through until the day they rest in peace. And peace is never guaranteed. When all you see is killing sprees over bread and over greens, the scarcity is scaring me. One night she might bury me like the seed of apple of a tree. I just pray that the fruit I bear helps a generation eats. So Papa isn't overworked, and Mama isn't home alone, and children see a family structure worth building their future on. They don't want me talking church. This is that truth that will set you free from 40K, no overtime, just all your time, good grief. I don't want you starving ever, robbing just to solve it ever. Family problems get no better until we unify our efforts. Clever, yes, we are together. Only if it's main endeavor, you can be rich alone when sacrifice is not the standard. But when standard is set in stone, that's when family home would grow. Starting with the beat and bones, I'm talking about the heart. Oh, that's the hardest part, yo. When heartless seems to run the globe, to walk in love seems in vain. But in the vein is blood flow. In other words, love is needed. Only force I'm bleeding for. Dr. King found the secret. Only force can change our world. Enemies can't believe it. When you help instead of hurt, only proving that you're not whatever that they thought you were. Evil will undo itself. Goodness, truest form of wealth, but you'll never make the Forbes list for saving somebody else. But you'll always have their hearts. That's what love truly means. 40 K is not compensation. Where I'm from, we just call it good grief. Thank you. And next up we have Meg Grove. Meg Grove is the daughter and granddaughter of St. Paul natives who found her way to town nearly 30 years ago. She lives in the Macrobla neighborhood where, finally, she is no longer considered the newcomer. Please welcome Meg. Grandma Jeb, jail matron. I have two photos of my Grandma Jeb. One is a formal portrait in her Ramsey County Sheriff's uniform. In it, she looks very much like I remember her, an old lady in big glasses with white hair, a little frizzy on the right side, as though the perm took there but was a no-show on her left. No doubt she'd had her hair done at a downtown beauty parlor, as they used to be called. She's got a hat on with a standard law enforcement issue five-pointed star pinned at the center, a little smaller than the one on her chest. The photo is in gray tones, making it impossible to distinguish the actual colors. The jacket is probably deep brown with tan epaulets. The shirt she wears is department issue two, possibly the same color as the epaulets. Collar is buttoned at the neck and there's a simple crossover satin tie. The uniform overwhelms the woman in, the, in a way. It's hard to see what her face looks like. She was Grandma Jeb the jail matron to me. When she visited Fargo, taking the Empire Builder from St. Paul, I think she might have been wearing that uniform. She smoked parliaments and had the voice to show for it. 
the uniform, the job, the raspy voice, the fact that we saw her only at Christmas, she scared the shit out of us. <laughs> Our mother would assemble the six of us in the kitchen to greet her when she arrived. Just be good, she would implore. She was scared of Grandma Jeb, too. We squirmed and shifted foot to foot as Grandma Jeb inspected each in turn. You're taller now, she might assert. Once she grabbed my head in her hands, demanding to know where I got my curly hair. John had curly hair, she said, eyebrow arched. By then, my dad, John, was as bald as a cue ball. Grandma Jeb would stay at our house for three days, taking over a bedroom, which meant even more cramped sleeping quarters than usual. She had a job at Christmas for which she was uniquely suited. Christmas Eve night, she slept on the couch in the living room where the tree was and where the packages lay like pot lay piled like treasures in King Tut's tomb, or at least that's how she guarded them. Approached to early Christmas morning and she growled, probably just as she did at the criminals under her watch. I said I have two photos of Grandma Jeb. Years after she died, I found the second photo in the bottom drawer of my mother's big maple secretary. This photo was of two people, a boy of about 10 and a stunning young woman. I recognized my dad instantly but I had no idea who the woman was. On the back in my mother's handwriting is proof that the woman was Grandma Jeb. The photo was taken in 1935. By then, this lovely woman's husband had succumbed to death by slow asphyxiation, the result of breathing mustard gas in the trenches of France. Her mother was gone, her father, a likable drunk, had retired from the railroad and was living with her and her son on Fairmont Avenue. The country was deep into the depression with a quarter of the workforce un unemployed. Genevieve Marie, as she was known then, was lucky to have a job as a stenographer working for the state of Minnesota. In 1935, St. Paul was in the final paroxysms of the gangster era, and Tommy Gibbons became the new sheriff in town. The boxer turned businessman and an Irishman from the same parish and neighborhood as Genevieve promised to clean up local law enforcement he hired Genevieve as a clerk and eventually made her the first Ramsey County Jail matron. Next up we have Linda Back McKay. Linda Back McKay is a poet, author, teaching artist, and writing coach who grew up talking to oak trees. She lives with David McKay between two bridges in Minneapolis where she can gaze across the river to her homeland in St. Paul. Please welcome Linda. And I do that every day. I gaze across the river to my homeland, right here. <laughs> um, I have two poems in this book, and they're both um, for my brother, who died nine years ago at the end of April. Um, if you like, to, I like to follow along. So, the first one's on page two twenty-seven. It's called "To Mourn a Bear." You, the lumbering bear crashed through city forests, crunching beetles and worms washed up by the night rain. You blasted your toy tank from behind trees, blind to collateral damage. We were brother and sister, in sync on green board swings our father named for us. We shared the dog, our precious books, the red wagon gone rusty in the garage. We stared at the same worn spot on the kitchen linoleum floor as we retreated into separate memory caves. I kept alive the you I knew with dried roses and photographs, my birthday and your birthday. 
And this one is a little more broad, a little broader focus. It's called Gravestone City. It begins with a quote from the uh, Fort Snelling National Cemetery handout. During winter months, new interments are not seated until the following growing season begins. Um, we weren't there when he was interred, a better word than shut away forever in an underworld cavern surrounded by dead people all alone. It was April when he was seated before the growing season, his growing season cut short. We look for him along the logical streets of dominoes, set in exacting rows. His address is 278 Gravestone City. His representative monolith shows nothing of his real self. There is a sparse patch of grass, a pair of geese pass over. The city is a hushed metropolis. Purple Heart is his next door neighbor. Two doors away, the one who died on my birthday. All four of them here in the same week. Somewhere on another block are my uncle and aunt, her name on the back, his wife, her measure of honor. The war to end all wars has failed in its mission. The lives who earned these stones have tumbled into one another, one tumble because, because for another a long time ago, but some, but time is dust and ash is earth, and what exactly are these lives worth? Next up, we have Georgia Greeley. Georgia Greeley is a writer and visual artist, interdisciplinary in thought and creative action. She lives and works in St. Paul and at Minnesota Center for Book Arts. Her passion for combining words and images has historically shown up as, a fine, pre and as fine press broadsides, handmade artists' books, and limited edition fine press books. Please welcome Georgia. So I'm doing two personas here. I got my artist t-shirt on and I'm reading something I wrote. In our lives there are times when we have short conversations that touch our hearts in different ways. That, and, and this is one. This is a story about one that happened to me that took place and it touched me so deeply that I came home and wrote about it right away. Grocery store, Highland Park, 2013. In memory of Barbara Bialis. Barbara, hello, it's good to see you. My friend Ellen's mother looked up, confused. I'm Georgia. I used to sing with your daughter, Ellen, and her friends, Peggy and Ann, remember? Oh, oh yes. A slow, unsure smile rounded her face and warmed her greenish-gray hazel eyes. We stared at each other. She reminded me of a river almost drained of water, enduring, dry, fragile. How are you getting along in that big old house alone, I asked. She sighed and looked at her grocery cart. I don't like cooking for myself. The expression on her face was that of a young child caught stealing candy. We both stared at the cherry strudel and frozen dinners in her cart. Nothing fresh. I just eat out of boxes. Barbara's husband had done most of the cooking, creative gourmet meals. He was a musician by trade, but passionate about food. She turned toward me, her spirit rushing into her face and thickening her presence. You've heard about Peggy, she asked. 
that rush of energy turned to hurt. She's gone through so much. But her prognosis is good. I wanted to hug her as I said the words, but we had never touched in that way, only through music. You know Joan has breast cancer too. I nodded, thinking about Barbara's life. One daughter dead of a brain aneurysm, her husband less than a year gone, Joan seriously ill, her own two bouts with breast cancer, only Ellen pale and hardy. I held both hands to my chest. I have no breasts, but I'm still around, still here. I had one, she didn't say removed, just held one hand to her chest. I know, I said. My voice sounded like a mother comforting a child whose hurts can't be stilled. I know, I know, I know. We stared at the four items in her cart. Looks like we both need to get moving, I said. She took the hand from her chest and touched my shoulder and gave me the full Barbara smile, like a sunrise on a perfect sunny summer morning. Then she pushed her cart down another aisle, hoping for boxed surprises. Next up, we have Louis DeSanto. Louis DeSanto retired from Como Zoo in 2005. He was also a writer slash photographer for the Weekly Sun newspaper. His interests include writing children's stories, listening to classical music, watching old movies, and reminiscing with friends about the good times he had in downtown St. Paul. Louis is especially honored to be one of the winners of the 2011 St. Paul Sidewalk Poetry Contest, as well as to have several stories published in the Almanac. Please welcome Louis. Thank you, David. Nice to see uh, so many people here. And, and it is a real honor to be among so many talented writers. You know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And the story you're about to hear is true. And no names were changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> this is Zoo Mama and the Orangutan. She was affectionately known as Zoo Mama, and in the 20 years I worked as a keeper at St. Paul's Como Zoo, I never met a nicer or more passionate advocate for this beloved conclave of creatures great and small than Arlene Schooneman. When she died in 2013 at age 79, Arlene left an indelible mark on the zoo from helping to start the Como Zoo Society and docent education and guide program to successfully lobbying for $8.5 million in desperately needed state funding for new buildings in the mid-70s. And it was their sincere hope that Como would always remain a free zoo. But Arlene is perhaps best known for turning her Como Park Zoo, her Como Park home, into a true animal house, uh, not to be confused with the movie, becoming Zoo Mama to an eclectic collection of baby gorillas, orangutans, lions, tigers, and bears. Nurturing these critters for anywhere from four months to over a year was a remarkable act of love and generosity 
by Arlene and her family. And it was also a considerable test of their perseverance and patience. And Arlene had the battered furniture to prove it. For me, however, the most enduring memory of Arlene is the hot July day in 1985 when three orangutans made a daring daylight escape. Unlike Casey the gorilla, who used brute strength to leap to the top of a 15-foot wall in his highly publicized 1994 escape, the orangs employed a more cerebral approach. They broke off a branch from the tree in their yard, propped it against the wall, and calmly climbed out. <laughs> After moving visitors out of the area, keepers were able to walk the two younger orangs, Carlo and Bruno, back into the primate building. Although it took some donuts to coax down Carlo, who had scampered to the top of the small monkey cage. But adult female Gigi had other ideas. She headed out the south gate into the park, surrounded by an entourage of keepers as if she was a famous celebrity. The first thing we tried was trapping Gigi with a heavy cargo net, but she tossed it aside like it was grandma's paisley shawl. And she turned up her nose at the Twinkies and fruit I offered. As our surreal little parade marched past the O'Neill ride area, who should come running up but Arlene? Gigi was one of the babies Arlene had raised in her home, and she was hoping to use some friendly persuasion on her foster daughter. You remember me, Gigi, Arlene said reassuringly. <laughs> Take my hand and we'll go back to the zoo. But as Arlene reached out, Gigi suddenly flipped up her powerful left arm and sent Arlene crashing to the ground. I helped to stun Arlene to her feet and then continued to follow Gigi, who showed absolutely no remorse as she trudged across Como Avenue, where two policemen had stopped traffic. Gigi then entered a nearby thicket and climbed a small tree, sitting quietly until she was tranquilized by zoo veterinarian Ralph Farnsworth and transported back to the primate building. Afterward, I talked to a still shaken and slightly embarrassed Arlene who reflected on her close encounter of the painful kind. Probably not a good idea, she admitted, but I really thought Gigi would feel comfortable with me. I never dreamed she would knock me down. I applauded Arlene for her courage and good intentions. And then, in a very serious tone, I said, just think about all you did for Gigi welcoming that furry bundle of joy into your home, the late night feedings, changing diapers, forgiving her when she got into mischief, cleaning up those little accidents. And how does she show her gratitude? By pulling you over like a sack of potatoes. 
Arlene threw her head back and burst into laughter. And that is how we will always remember this wonderful lady and zoo mama, the best friend Como Zoo ever had. Wow. See, it wasn't too long after that incredibly the orangutans broke off another branch from their tree <laughs> and seemed poised to go for the wall again. The first thing I did was run into the primate house and I got some Twinkies. Then I climbed over the, the retaining fence and very carefully peeked over the wall and there was Gigi looking up at me holding that branch. So I, I said, Look, Gigi, I'll make you a trade. You give me the branch, I'll give you the Twinkies. And unbelievably, she handed the branch right up, <laughs> and I threw her the Twinkies. And I remember a big cheer went up from the crowd gathered around the exhibit. Uh, it was a perfect example of the barter system and quid pro quo, something for something. And to paraphrase an old adage, a Twinkie hath charm to soothe a savage beast. <laughs> By the way, we, we finally did replace the tree, which was, it was just kind of a big dead tree, with wooden poles. And I thought, there's no way they could ever break off one of those and prop them against the wall. But I still kept a box of Twinkies handy, just in case. Thank you again. I'd like to introduce our last reader for tonight, uh, Peg Guilfoyle. Uh, Peg Guilfoyle is the author of several books, including Offstage Voices, Life in the Twin Cities Theater. Her company, Peg Projects, produces history books for private clients. The first office she ever worked in was, the turret, was in a turret in Landmark Center, then called the Old Federal Courthouse. She lives in downtown St. Paul. Please welcome Peg. I'm on page 108, for those of you who are following along, and there are some photos on those pages. This piece is called Uncle Tex's Wedding. My elderly aunt and I disgraced ourselves in the newspaper archives up at the History Center this year, laughing and sputtering and leaning on the microfilm reader amid disapproving looks from our fellows. We were working on family history, usually a sedate kind of inquiry, but we could hardly control our mirth. Really, it was awful when this old story rolled into view from the St. Paul Dispatch of June 19, 1919, confirming a treasured family tale. Headline, Horseman dashes into hotel, seizes bridegroom. A horseman last night, said the paper, spurred his steed through the door and into the lobby of the Foley Hotel, 7th and Jackson Streets, while a reception in honor of Mr. and Mrs. John William Condon, married at the St. Paul Cathedral yesterday morning, was in progress. The horseman headed his mount directly towards the bride. Her husband quickly stepped between them to shield her from the invader. Not to be outwitted, the lone rider caught Condon in his grasp, swung his horse about, and rider and victim disappeared through the door. Men in the lobby rushed to prevent the abduction, but were forced to retreat by a volley of shots from more than 50 revolvers grimly grasped 
by an equal number of horsemen waiting outside. While the intruders held the would-be rescuers at a distance, Condon, despite his vehement protests, was tied securely to a hayrack. The vehicle, with its cortege of shooting, howling horsemen, started up the street, a source of wonder to pedestrians. <laughs> it does not matter what old pictures look like. Our ancestors are not stiffly posed, sepia-toned, collared and bustled cardboard cutouts. Whether respectable or rascals, famous or unknown, downtrodden or doing the trotting, they were demonstrably and undeniably alive. Nearly 100 years ago, my great uncle, John William Condon, called Tex, was married for the first of several times here in St. Paul to a society girl who had just graduated from what was then called Visitation Convent and whose father owned the downtown Foley Hotel. Uncle Tex was a cattleman working at the South St. Paul Stockyards, one of four sons in a family of Texas stockmen. On the day before Tex's wedding, the dispatch described plans for a rather decorous and conventional cathedral wedding, white peonies on the altar, bridal march from Lohengrin. The day after the wedding, the paper carried the above front page story, fevered in tone, above the fold, about the shenanigans at the reception. What happened? Well, there is an answer. It was Hookham Cow. South St. Paul and its stockyards had, in 1919, a booster club formed primarily from the stockyard cattlemen and cowboys. 500 members strong. It had a marching unit, a queen, a singing quartet, and quite a reputation. At their first appearance at the St. Paul Winter Carnival, the newspaper reported, quote, the Hookham Cow Cavaliers terrified lady visitors by impromptu ring around the rosy in the streets, <laughs> end quote. Tex, a large and boisterous man, was the drum major for Hookham Cow. And it was the Hookham Cow boys who rode their horses into St. Paul right up Concord Street to the hotel and stole great uncle Tex from the wedding reception, grimly grasping their revolvers. After the protesting groom was carried away, the dispatch went on, there was a quote, careening ride around town in the buckboard. When the new father-in-law bravely offered himself as hostage, the boys took that worthy gentleman to the police station where he was locked in a cell and eventually had to buy the robes off with a box of cigars. <laughs> you just have to wonder what the new in-laws were thinking. <laughs> Tex went on to a long and roistering career as a cattleman and auctioneer all over the West, flying from stock show to stock show in his own plane, on the side of which was painted Tex Condon, the big bull shipper. <laughs> had at least two more wives. We don't know what happened to the former Miss Philbin. When I drive up Concord Street now, I sometimes think that I glimpse the Hookham Cowboys on a June afternoon, trotting up toward the city, hayrack rattling and at the ready, all set to do mischief at the big society wedding. Family research comes in traces 
the rest you are perfectly free to imagine. The paper says that after their eventful reception, the young couple left for the East on their honeymoon. And I like to think of them settling into their seats on the train, looking out the window at a 1919 St. Paul disappearing behind them. And I like to imagine the new Mrs. Condon, so young, gazing up at her big husband, relieved that there were, as far as she knew, no hook and cow boys aboard and along. Um, all right, uh, th uh, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, um, I appreciate you guys coming on tonight. This has been fantastic. Um, uh, again, uh, copies of the Almanac for sale, please see me uh, if you'd like to purchase one. We still have eight events, uh, eight more of these readings. Uh, I hope to see you out at, uh, at uh, some of the other ones. Uh, I have uh, some cards here if you'd like to take some home with you or perhaps bring them uh, if, if you'd like to distribute them somewhere if, you, if you'd like a stack. I have a couple spares. Um, and uh, we also have uh, uh, the information up on uh, stpaulalmanac.org. It has uh, the events. Um, and then they also have every, you know, everything else they have that's going on in uh, St. Paul with the Almanac. And then we also have uh, the schedule of events on our crackwallet.com on our website as well. Uh, finally, uh, before we go, I just want to give a big thank you to all the readers uh, who came out tonight and shared their stories with us. Um, it's, always the, um, it's always the most, uh, you know, the most important part of the readings are the readers and uh, the readers themselves. So thank you all for, for bringing your material tonight and sharing it with us. Um, I really enjoyed it and I deeply appreciate it. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.